It is indeed a privilege for my wife Lorraine and myself to be in your presence this morning. Uh, we just got back from India on Tuesday evening, and uh, between then and now, we don't know what happened. It was all lost in jet lag. <laughs> and uh, it truly is a privilege and uh, a joy for us to be with you because, um, let me explain it this way. When God gave us this vision to go back to India, we started to share this with a few churches. Would you believe it and know it, that your church was the first one to come on board and say, we'll support you. I think you need a hand for that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And so it is so fitting that in preparing our schedule for reporting and deputation back in Canada, your church is the first one that we're here at this morning. And I'd, I, we will not have it any other way. And I'm going to ask you, the first slide gets on the, on the screen right now. Um, we're back from India. We've been there for about seven months, but it seems like we've been there for seven years already. <laughs> and uh, India is a land of one billion people. Now, if you don't know what one billion looks like, uh, let's make it a little smaller. We're in the city of Calcutta with about 16 million people. I say six, about 16 million. It's because nobody really knows the number. When they do the census, they catch people with a, with a street address. And there are probably millions who live on the streets who don't have an address. And if you want to know how it feels like living in a city with 16 million, if you can imagine coming out of a Sky Dome Blue Jays game, that's how it feels every day walking on the streets. That's 16 million people for you. And uh, the city of Calcutta has this goddess as its patron goddess. She's known as Kali, the goddess of destruction. Every morning, 16 million people pray to her, invoking her spirit upon the city. And so those who are sensitive to spiritual forces, the moment they land in Calcutta, they say, this is a dark city. And you're, they're right, it is a dark city. Uh, on the next slide, you'll find a, uh, I call them survivor pastors. Some of you, how many of you saw that uh, Operation Mobilization video called Black Christmas. It was uh, presented by Operation Mobilization uh, about an incident that happened in 2007 when in one city uh, in the province of Urissa, uh, the Hindus rose up and massacred many, many Christians. And literally thousands of Christians ran to the forest uh, to save their lives. And uh, we... God gave me a privilege to be there with these pastors of that area. They'd lost everything. Their homes are burned. Their churches have been burned down. But when they heard we were coming, they still made it to the conference. Isn't that amazing? Fifty of these pastors. And we were able to, uh, to minister to them and share some of their stories. But on the next screen, you will find um, uh, this is what we did. We went to that area basically taking school books, textbooks, and uniforms for kids who had lost everything. And uh, <clears throat> the persecution still continues. And uh, some sense of normalcy is starting to come back in some areas. And here on the right hand is a picture of a man who was a persecutor, but who discovered that the hand of God was upon him uh, through persecution himself, on his own life. And uh, he, he got sick, desperately sick. And he realized that the only one who could help him was Jesus Christ. So when he called for help, one of the evangelists, the one on his left, went to him, uh, on my left rather, on his right, went to him and shared the message with him. And this persecutor 
became a believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? So uh, some of these things are happening in India. And uh, the next scene will show you a typical Kolkata scene. Uh, whether you go out to do a little shopping or you're going to go to work, that's the kind of uh, scene you have. And I'm sorry my camera wasn't widescreen enough to catch the entire street. But vying for space on that street are also the buses and taxis. So uh, people are literally walking in between cars and dodging traffic. And uh, on this next picture is the church that has called us back in 2007 when Kerry Baptist Church invited my wife and I to come back to be their pastor. It also opened up the door for us to go back with a pastor's training project. So we're back there with a twin focus, one of uh, pastoring this church, which is 200 years old. Uh, It had been without a pastor since 2005. And so when we got there, things were, uh, I shared with a little group on Friday night, it was almost like uh, we were Ezra and Nehemiah going back. We found the temple in ruins. We found the walls all broken down. And so we had to do a, a work of rebuilding. And praise the Lord, things are happening again. Uh, there are obstacles to growth in India. And uh, some of this is the fear of persecution. It's very, very real. Uh, every person who hears the gospel, whether he's a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, uh, before they commit their lives to Christ, the first thing they think of, is what will happen when my parents get to know. And so the fear of persecution keeps them from accepting Christ. And then superstition. Uh, There are over 330 million gods and goddesses in India. And so the superstition that if I believe in Jesus Christ, what will the other 330 million, 199, what will the other gods do to me? Okay, so the superstition And then also the lack of trained leadership. And we figured that if we were to make some impact on India, we couldn't tackle all three of those. We can go in where we can do our best, and that was to train the leadership. And um, what we discovered as we went back, that more than 80% of Indian pastors who are in the field serving have had little or no formal training in a Bible school or or in theology at all. So uh, that was a great field of uh, opportunity for us. And uh, happy to report that the church is growing once again. Uh, We've had three vacation Bible schools uh, programs this summer with over 300 kids registering and uh, 26 decisions. All of these decisions from these kids are from kids who who come from Muslim homes, Hindu homes, and Buddhist homes. Uh, The youth is active once more. Our attendance is up to by almost 100%. When we went, there were about 45 to 50 people in the church. Uh, Think of a church uh, auditorium that can seat about 150 people, and that two-thirds of that was empty. And now we're up to between 85 to 100 people. So we praise God for that. Giving is up 40%, so we praise God for that also. Um, In the next few slides, you're going to see our children's ministries. Uh, Some of these clips are from the Vacation Bible School. Uh, this little girl from a, from a single mom home uh, lost her father very early, came to the Lord, and you can see the smile on her face. She's smiling like that always because she knows the Lord. And uh, here's a little kid in the uh, kindergarten. And just uh, if you saw his home, your heart will break. Uh, not even one of these pews could fit into their home. It's so small. And yet they come faithfully and regularly to the church. And... Uh, 
here's a picture of the church from the inside. That was our vacation Bible school program in English. And here's another picture of, uh, here's a teacher. Uh, she's a Hindu lady who had been attending the church for the last four or five years. And uh, even though she was not a Christian, the uh, young people felt that she could be a helper so that she could hear the gospel. And when we were there on Good Friday, she gave her heart to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Uh, others sow, and then we go in there and reap the harvest. And um, here in this next clip, you'll find, uh, why is this so unique? I'm so sorry I left my, uh, my laser pointer at home. But the, the man in the black leading it, he's a Dalit. You have heard of the Dalits? They're the outcast people in India. There's four caste systems, and the Dalits are the lowest of the low. Uh, they cannot touch the people from the first caste, and they, they are the most deprived people. But here he is leading in the song worship, and behind him are a group of Muslim young people, a group of Hindu young people, and a group of Roman Catholic kids, many of, who came, of whom came to the Lord. This is snack time, always a popular time at any kids' program, and then our crafts program at the Vacation Bible School. And uh, some of these kids were just trying their hands out at some of these... Uh, things that they've never done before. And uh, here's the final closing program. And this next picture is precious. It's uh, these Hindu kids doing the closing program at Vacation Bible School. And here is a Hindu mother who dresses up her kid and sends him regularly to church. And says, you go there for Sunday school, you go there for VBS. And Jai Chandran, the boy, accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and he bugs me every Sunday. He comes to me and says, Uncle, give me a memory verse to memorize. And so I keep giving him memory verses. And God help me if I forget to have a memory verse for him for the next Sunday. Because <laughs> he will come to me and say, you gave me this verse last week. And he's, he recites it and he says, what's my next verse? <laughs> Talk about keeping me on my toes. Uh, so that's been great. And uh, here's a, another shot of the Vacation Bible School kids coming in. Most of them from non-Christian homes. The youth ministry is taking off again. And here you find a picture of some of the youth uh, in their worship teams. I want to say this. I want to thank God for my wife. She's been partnering with me. She doesn't like my title for her, but she's my worship director. Dwayne? Um, when we went to the church, there was hardly any uh, worship leader. And uh, boy, we would love to take Dwayne back home. But imagine a, a church which still does this. Please rise. Turn to hymn number 455. Now thank we all our God. Damn. You get the picture. You get the picture. One morning, my wife and I were praying uh, just after our breakfast at 7.30 in our devotions. We said, Lord, please give us, give us young people and men and women whose hearts you've touched who can join with us in this ministry. And believe it or not, two hours later at 9.30, at the Bible school that was just attached to the church, two young people came to me and said something to me. I said, you need to go and talk to my wife. And what they basically came to say was, Pastor, we want to be involved in the ministry. And I said, in what way? And he said, in worship. <laughs> so imagine when they went to my wife. My wife said, okay, give me the names of those who want to be involved. And long story short, where we went back to a situation where we didn't have any worship team leaders, we now have three worship teams. Isn't that amazing? Praise be to the Lord, and this is just one of them. So on the next slide, you're going to see a picture of my wife in action, uh, training under the new worship leader. And the young people took it upon themselves to uh, organize their very first 
outreach event in July, and they called it Coffee House. Unfortunately, the rains came, and we could not have it out in the open. We had to have it in the church. And um, I'm not going to long story, but keep very short. At, this program was supposed to start at 5 o'clock. And at 5.18, the church just seemed to be filled with people, and the auditorium was packed with non-church people, 150 or so non-church people. And when we gave the invitation for those who would like to know more about Jesus, we gave out over 40 New Testaments. Isn't that amazing? And so we want to praise God that the youth are starting to take off. Young people just relaxing at the pastor's home. This is something that we've had to get used to. Our residence is attached to the church. Now, one thing good is we don't have to drive to church, okay? But the bad part about it is is, uh, we're 24-7 on duty. And so very often these young people, they just come say, they call my wife and I, uncle and aunt. Okay, this is typical in India. Uncle and auntie, uh, are you free? Can we come? (laughs) What do you say when you've already opened the door? And they all come in and... (laughs) And they come and they crash at our place and here you can watch them playing Uno. And in the seven months we've been there, we've had three baptism services. And the young man that's just being dunked is from a Hindu Brahmin home. And his testimony is just awesome. His mom was going to cut him off from the home uh, uh, inheritance. And these were his words to his mother. He said, Mom, I love God so much. I love the Lord Jesus so much. I don't care for the brick, mortar, and cash that you're trying to deprive me of. I've never looked on an inheritance in those words. Brick, mortar, and cash. And this young man is just growing in the Lord right now. And on April 23rd, this is something any pastor, any church would give an arm and a leg for. We gave birth to a fourth congregation. A fourth congregation of 150 people landed at our doorstep. Now let me give you a little explanation of this. There's a missionary couple from New Zealand who works amongst the red light area. These are former sex workers who have given up their sex trade for freedom in Christ. And he has a little factory producing bags that they export to the West, but they couldn't find a church to worship in. Every church they went to said, no. And so he came to us, and uh, we talked about it. And looking at the logistics, they could not fit into our regular congregation, A, because they didn't know English. B, the other two language congregations that we have at our church already have a sizable congregation, so we couldn't fit 150. So we came to a God-given a decision that we would meet once a month on the third Saturday of the month. And just before we left, we conducted our third worship service with this group that we call Free to Worship. Isn't that amazing? It, was, it melts your hearts just to watch these ladies singing hallelujahs and hosannas uh, just as great as any congregation would. And these are people who have found freedom in Jesus Christ. But India's great need is for trained leaders. And um, here's a prolific soul winner. He comes from a Muslim background. And in the five or six years that he's known the Lord, he has baptized over 250 Muslim converts. He's had to leave his hometown because they started burning his home down. But the problem we discovered in moving him was that he had no leadership skills. And so he was not able to organize those 250 into regular churches or train someone to take his place. So this is where we have gone back with a vision 
to train men and women like him. And here's a group of uh, young people who were in a Bible institute for 10 months. And after 10 months, they were going to be sent into the work as pastors. I talked to one of the uh, men who, has, who had been in that Bible institute, been in the work for nine years. And he's now serving under me as one of the Bengali pastors. And his first question to me during my first months there, he says, how do you decide on Monday morning what you're going to preach next Sunday? I think that's every pastor's struggle. But here was a young man, what basically he was telling me was that he had not been given sufficient training to know how to plan even a whole year's preaching curriculum. And so I said to him, you come to our training program. And so he's one of the young men who's going to be in our training program as well. Starting September 29th, we're launching our first training program. And as you heard uh, said from here, Pastor Rick is going to be one of our training pastors along with two other Canadian pastors. 29th September to October 2nd, 55 Indian pastors have registered. If we had more space, uh, space is a big constraint. We could not find a large enough conference ground or hall to seat more people. But if we could, and if the funding permitted, we could have had up to 100 pastors. But we're starting with 55 and... uh, Pastor Rick is going to be busy. He's not only going to be teaching these students, uh, these pastors, he's also going to be holding a seminar for three nights in homiletics and biblical preaching for city pastors and students from five Bible colleges in the city. So we're going to uh, make him busy. And also on the Sunday before he heads back to Oshawa, he's going to be preaching at the historic 200-year-old Carey Baptist Church where William Carey preached and ministered. Uh, Here we have some of the young people from the Bible College praying for souls. And here are some women from different areas uh, also training for the ministry. And my wife and I really want to thank you. We value your prayers. Thank you for your partnership. We could not have done this had it not been for folks like you who came right up in the beginning and said, we want to be a part of this ministry. So I trust that this little report has been a blessing to your heart. In the time remaining... I'd like to share with you a a message called Till the Nets Are Full. English is a strange language for many people. You who have grown up here, you don't realize how fortunate you are to be able to speak English fluently. My wife has had the uh, great privilege of being asked by the Bible College to teach English to uh, the first year BTH and the first year MDiv students. And so I've never seen my wife work so hard every morning Uh, surfing the net for English lessons, and uh, she's doing a great job. Uh, In a a clip from an old Tom Selleck uh, movie called Mr. Baseball, I don't know if you've seen that one, but Tom is in a two-down, two-strike situation, and he is heard talking to his Japanese teammates, the Tokyo Dragons. He says, he looks over and grins, and he says, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. (laughs) Now, these Japanese don't know much English, and they looked around and said, Until one Japanese in the dugout says, I know what he means. He says, after the game is over, a fat lady is going to sing for us. (laughs) Well, we've been to India and we've heard English, I was going to say English spoken, but English massacred in different ways. (laughs) One of the Indian managers of an insurance company was so upset with his salesman for not performing And uh, he wanted to ask him, what on earth are you doing? But in his anger and hurry, 
his question came out this way. What are you doing on earth? (laughs) But you know, I think that's a very appropriate question to ask ourselves this morning. What are you doing on earth? As Christians especially. And may I suggest, as it pertains to the Great Commission, may I suggest three things that you and I could be doing on earth. And number one is go to all the world. Go to all the world. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the text that has been announced in in the bulletin. Matthew chapter 28. It's a familiar text. And... uh, It's known as the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When Jesus gave these words to his his disciples, He was giving them a mandate to move out of their immediate domain to do missions. He said, therefore, go. It is interesting to note that the word uh, translated apostles in the Greek language is the word apostolos, which means one who is sent. So if these 12 disciples and apostles were to live up to the name that they were given, they had to go or else be known as a misnomer. Now, can you imagine for a moment the church at which these 12 disciples and apostles worshipped? Can you imagine each Sunday as they came, the ushers would shake their hands and say, you haven't gone yet? It would be like having all those missionaries on your wall. Notice your missions wall. And by the way, you don't have my photo on it yet. That's okay, we're gone, okay? (laughs) But can you imagine all the photos on your missionary wall turning up every Sunday for worship here? Well, that'd be great the first Sunday. You say, great to have you back. But Sunday after Sunday, if they showed up here, what would you be saying? I'm sure some of you would be getting on that phone to your pastor or to your missions committee and saying, what on earth is happening? Why are they still here? Well, only once in his interaction with his disciples did Jesus say, come, only once. When he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. After that, if you look at the words of Jesus, he never said, come anymore. He said, go. In his book, Kingdom Principles for Church Growth, the author Gene Mims says this, and I quote, a church that does not go to lost persons and share the gospel with them is like a restaurant that has food prepared but refuses to serve the hungry. End quote. Jesus went with the good news of of salvation when he was on earth. From Capernaum to Jerusalem, a distance of almost 80 kilometers one way, if you will trace the travels of Jesus Christ in his very first year of public ministry, we will read that he crisscrossed that distance four times. That's a total of 320 kilometers, and most of it on foot. Most of it on foot. In the course of that first year's trips, he ministered to people like Nicodemus and to the woman at the well in Samaria. How about us? Sometimes to go is so difficult. Have you ever been confronted with the challenge to go 
And did you find these questions surfacing in your mind? Go? Who, me? How will I go? And who will support me? And what will I do when I get over there? I don't have the answers to all those questions, but I do know this. And it's from the experience of the last seven months already. The Lord who sends, he knows where he will send. And he also knows how he will send us. And he knows also how you will be supported. So to go to all the world, we will be asked to get out of our comfort zones. During one of the phone calls to our family, we talked to our daughters and and they said, oh, summer's getting hot. So my wife asked our daughter, how hot is it in Toronto? She said, oh, they say it's going to be up to 28 degrees. And then she asked my wife, how hot is it there in Kolkata? Well, it was in, in, uh, in the month of April, May. And my wife said, 42 degrees? And 98% humidity. Wow, yes, that's right. There's never a dry face and a never a dry shirt on our backs. In fact, one of my Indian colleagues, he looked at him and he says, Jack, you're leaking. <laughs> my face was just pouring. Yep. And then the mosquitoes. Ah, oh, those mosquitoes. It, I don't know how many times I said to my wife, if I get a chance to talk to Noah, I would have asked him, when you had the chance of two of them on your ark, why didn't you settle them then? <laughs> but that's what it is, getting out of your comfort zones. That's what it will mean to go into all the world in order to win others for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we often measure the success of our church ministries by how many people we bring in. But I think the true measure of success must be counterbalanced by the number of people we send out. You agree with me? God never gave us the commission or the mandate to build a big church. Bless, praise the Lord that you have a big church. But if you are only bringing in people and not sending out people as well, then I believe God would like us to reconsider the Great Commission to go into all the world to make disciples. So that's the first thing. The second thing about um, what are you going to do on earth is that we must reach out to all the peoples. Reach out to all the peoples. You could go, but still not reach out to all the peoples. Interesting that when Jesus first sent his disciples out on what I call the short-term missions, I remember he instructed them to go to the Jews only. Because this was their first mission trip. They had no experience of sharing the gospel with anybody. So he said, you go. Stay with the home crowd. But later, when Jesus sent the 70, and now in Matthew 28, there's a paradigm shift. It's not to go to the Jews only. He says, go into all the world. It is interesting to note that the word translated nations in the Greek is ethne. Ethne is the word from which we got our English word ethnic. So the word nations is ethne or ethnic, and it means people groups, tribes, nations, racial groups. Not too long ago, before we left for India, my wife and I were stopped at a red light uh, just outside a church in Malvern. And they had put up one of these, you know, these uh, electronic billboards where the words go running past. And, and they had this uh, sentence that said, a church of 45 nations. And my wife and I went like, 
wow, a church of 45 nations. But then we kind of uh, became defensive. We said, yeah, we come from Morningstar. It's a church of 72 nations. You ever get into that kind of spiritual pride situation where you... Well, let me give you some facts and figures to put both these numbers, 45 and 72, in perspective. As of today, there are about 22,000 ethnic groups in the world, people groupings in the world. And of that 22,000 people groups, approximately 5,000 of those people groups are yet to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, either because there's no gospel in their language or there's no missionary in their language. And these 5,000 people groups, their population is approximately 1.7 billion. That's almost a third of the entire world's population. That's how many people who don't know the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't heard about him yet. And so our 45 plus 72 nations are but just a drop in the ocean when you consider all the unreached peoples. And I trust that God will lay on our hearts that we will continue to do everything in our power to reach out to all the peoples. The Apostle Paul expresses his heart's passion about reaching out to all the peoples. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, follow with me as I just point out a few things from verse 19 to verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here Paul gives six comparisons in which he says he's doing everything possible to reach every person for Jesus Christ. In verse 19, he says, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. In verse 20, he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. That's category two. In verse 20, again, he says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law, category three. Verse 21, he said, to those outside the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. That's category four. In verse 22, he says, to the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. That's category five. And in verse 22, the last part, he says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. So here we find the Apostle Paul doing everything he could in his power to reach all the peoples for Jesus Christ. One of the great realities of the greater Toronto area, and I include Joshua in that, is that the world's, the world's peoples are coming here. Uh, I don't know how many times people said to us when we got back to Calcutta, they said, what? You left Canada to come back to India? I said, why? What's so strange about that? And some of them were not uh, ashamed to say, we've been trying for so many years to go there, we can't even get there, but you come back here, Why? Well, give us an opportunity, but these were non-Christians, okay? We were able to give them the reason that it is the love of Christ for him that took us back there. But what about, what about you and I who are still here? Well, not too long ago, Oshawa seemed to be a little bit beyond the influx of the immigrants. But have you taken a look around your, your backyard lately? Have you smelled the cooking when you got home? You get that curry smell. You, you see more ethnic people in your area, right? Well, this is a stark reality of our multicultural nation. The worlds are coming to our backyards. What are you going to do about reaching out to all the peoples? Here's another reality. 
many of the immigrants who come to Canada find themselves living in pockets of their own people and uh, their own religious backgrounds. And in fact, they have become little Islamic islands and little Hindu islands. And they are just as close to the gospel as the nations and the countries that they came from. And this is what I find very sad, that in most instances, these people are living within sight of a church steeple. They're living within reach of a church with the good news in a once seven-time voted best country in the world, and they're still lost. I find that really, really hard to take. If they were still living in their Islamic Hindu nations and they were lost, I could say, yes, uh, we, we couldn't reach them on time. But they've come to our shores and they die without the gospel. My friend, you and I will have a lot of explaining to do to the Savior when we meet him and he says, do you remember Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20? What did you do with that? We have a lot of explaining to do. So go to all the world, reach out to all the peoples, and finally, we have to go and reach with all our means. Go and reach with all our means. In the passage, I just asked you to look up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, Paul says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Very quickly, since time is almost gone. If we're to do all these things with all possible means, three things have to be very clear. One, your goal must be defined. You must define your goal. And I, I do believe every church needs to wake up to this. Our, our goal is not better worship services or bigger budgets. God wants us to catch the vision of worldwide missions. And thank God for you. Now when you look on your missionary wall, you've got people sent out to every corner of the world. We are to go into all the world. And I often say this at Morningstar, not just to Mexico and not just to Florida. There's a world beyond these two places. Into all the world to make disciples. A second thing that needs to be defined and determined is our strategy. We need to determine our strategy. The way we go about doing missions is always up for discussions. You'll always find people say, no, you can't go door to door anymore. No, you cannot uh, give tracts on the street. Um, some of you will go to YouTube and type in the name Jason Hagen. You'll find the youth pastor of Morning Star. He did this. He went downtown to Bay Street. Bay and Young, I believe it was. And uh, a Blow and Young, sorry. And he put out a little box there and he says, $5 to anybody who will ask me a question. <laughs> and there were very few takers because they thought he's either loose up here or, or he didn't mean it. But he did give away a few $5 bills. And he did get into very meaningful interaction with people who were asking questions that really meant something. So here, I don't know what the strategy is for you, but you need to discover what is your spiritual gift and go according to that gift because God does not have a cookie-cutter method. He's given to each one of us a gift so that we can go and make a difference in reaching out to all the peoples. Unfortunately, we have too many critics and too few doers. The uh, well-known evangelist D.L. Moody was once accosted by a woman who came to him and said, I, uh, who, who came to him and said, I don't like your method of evangelism. So how was D.L. Moody to respond? This is what he said. 
He said, I don't really like mine all that much either. But what's yours? <laughs> Not finished yet. <laughs> she replied that she didn't have one. So Moody said, then I like mine better than yours. <laughs> yes. What is your method of evangelism? If you were to go back and look through your journals, what would you find? What have you done? And I say this to myself too, because I'm a pastor, but that doesn't exempt me from asking myself the same question. What have I done in relation to the peoples that have come to know and who don't know Jesus Christ? You know, um, that gas attendant who takes your cash, you could be the last Christian he meets before God calls him. Would you have given him the good news? The cashier at the Sobeys or the grocery store, you could be the only Christian who knows how to share the gospel, would she hear the gospel from your lips? And thirdly, your commitment must be developed. Your commitment must be developed. How do we measure our commitment? Well, uh, church growth gurus and missions gurus have told us the two ways of, uh, of uh, measuring our commitment is usually men and money. Men is generic, men and women, okay? And uh, so here's a startling t- statistic. In a recent survey of 28 Protestant denominations, it was revealed that on an average, only two cents out of every dollar given went to foreign missions. Man, it's becoming like the 2% milk that we drink. Two cents of every dollar that we give goes to missions. In 1920, about 80 years ago, that figure was 10 cents for every dollar. So we've dropped from a 10% commitment to a 2% commitment. So is there any wonder why? There is not much church growth elsewhere. Many churches have not had a commissioning service for years, and that is why they're packing up. No wonder churches are dying, not only in the unsending countries, but in the unreached countries as well. Let me close with this sad story, which will highlight the need for us to keep on working till the nets are full. George Sweeting of the Moody Bible Institute in his book, The No Guilt Guide for Witnessing, he tells of a man by the name of John Currier, who in 1949 was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Later, he was transferred and paroled to work on a farm near Nashville, Tennessee. In 1968, Currier's sentence was terminated and a letter bearing the good news was sent to him. But John never saw the letter, nor was he told anything about it. Life on that farm was hard and without promise for the future. Yet John kept working on that farm, even after the farmer for whom he had worked had died. Ten years went by, and then a state parole officer, going through his files, he learned about John Currier's story. And he went and found him and told him that his sentence had been terminated. He was a free man. And Sweeting, in concluding this story, he asked, Would it matter to you if someone sent you an important message, the most important message in your life, and year after year, that message was never delivered? Our world is waiting for the message of good news. Will it be delivered? That's up to you and me.